Hi, this is Kylie, and you're listening to episode 49 of Fixer Up. If this is your first time listening to me, thank you. I'm glad you're here. And don't worry, I'm not mad at you for not listening before. I would encourage you to go back and listen to others, though, because I think some of them are pretty good. You know, in my totally unbiased, honest opinion. (laughs) But I'm not mad at you. If you've listened to other episodes and have opted in for more, thank you. I rarely opt in to things, so I am super thankful. Okay, I'm going to dive right into this one, which I feel like that's my new MO. I used to say that I was doing something a little bit different from the first episodes, and then that something different became my norm, right? Well, now I'm diving right in a lot. So I think that's morphing into my norm, which I'm sure you guys probably have noticed. And I think it's kind of progressing, right? Like I'm progressing in the way that I do it, or maybe I'm shifting a little bit, but I like it. It's movement. What do you guys think? Do you think it's okay? Okay. So I know that I've mentioned a few times that I recently finished the book, The Body Keeps the Score. My Brain, Mind, and Body in the Healing of Trauma by Bessel van der Kolk, MD. Have you guys read it? I loved it. Oh my God, it was so good. So probably about a year ago, I was writing out all of my pending episode ideas and I had written down trauma release and I kept seeing things about trauma release like and different things that I was watching and different things on TV and different things that I had heard and on socials, it just kept coming up. And every time it came up, the book also came up as a resource for people who were trying to do this work. And I was like, okay, I'm totally going to get this. You know, I'm going to check out what this is all about. And even though it was a little bit harder to read because it reminded me of my own childhood shit, And some parts of it just flat out broke my heart, like gut-wrenching stories. I'm so glad I read it. Like, I'm so glad I got through that book because it was so good. Like, I could not recommend it anymore. Seriously, you guys need to read it. What I want to do here is actually address a few things that like especially resonated with me. And then I'm going to have my friend Andrea come on to some episodes with me about it because she's done a lot of work on her own trauma release. And so I know she does talks about it, which I think is really, really interesting to hear what she's done to help her through her own stuff and like move her along her path. And I I find that stuff very valuable. So hopefully you guys will too. And that's kind of the idea of what I want to do with these couple episodes. So as you can imagine, I took lots of notes and I highlighted a bunch of stuff in the book and I recommended it to my dad and I'm sure he probably took a bunch of notes as well because we're kind of two nerdy guys. Although the subject matter had a scientific bent, it didn't read like a boring textbook. Not only did it appeal to my love of psychology, but it was also well planned out and really easy to follow. It was really good. And as you guys know by now, I'm all about the stuff that cracks me open and makes me dig into the guts of everything. So yeah, the book was good. So I thought I'd share some of the parts that really got me thinking 
and how it resonated with me. And maybe some of that will hit home for you guys too. You know, early in the book, Dr. Vanderkoek poses the question, are traumatized people condemned to seek refuge in what is familiar? That's on page 31. If anybody cares, I'll kind of tell you where things are in the book if you want to go to certain sections. I think for me, I've definitely sought refuge in what was familiar. And it was part of my big attraction to Alec and to Tommy Lee, for sure. I think I can think of like three other guys just off the top of my head, just sitting here. Like it's not a stretch to think that's what I was doing, right? I don't know if I really agree with the word condemned for me, you know, because in my case, I think it's learned behavior and comfortable behavior, but I'm hopeful in that just as I've learned the behavior, that I can unlearn the behavior. Like I'm actively trying to do that. I think it's working-ish. <laughs> the doctor goes on later to address the enormous difficulty that traumatized individuals have telling other people what happened to them because their bodies experience terror and rage and helplessness. This is on page 43, by the way. I have friends who have expressed to me that they wish that I would talk to them about certain things of my childhood, which I always found such an odd thing to say to somebody. And I mean, talk to them versus talking to my therapist, which is just such a strange comment to me. Like it's still, I don't know. I have somebody that actually said something similar to me recently. And they wished that I was sharing something with them versus sharing it on the platform that I'm choosing to talk about certain things on. And again, it was such a strange comment to me. You know, in my 20s, when somebody said that to me for the first time, I was like, oh, okay. All right. You know, like I was just like, whatever. But then when somebody said it to me in my 50s, like recently they said it to me, I was just like, huh. It, it really made me do a double take. You know, and it was kind of a little hurtful, honestly, because, you know, I think at this age, why say that? Like, why, why would you say that? You know, I don't know, but I guess that's for another episode. Like literally I've written that episode, but I haven't recorded it yet. I'm not sure if I will or not, but, uh, maybe we'll see. Anyways, back to addressing the difficulty in telling people what happened with traumatic events it used to be really hard for me to talk about certain stuff. And sometimes when I recall stuff or I talk about it, I actually cry. But it's not like um it's not like a crying, sobbing. It's like a couple tears will just go down my face. You know, like do you guys cry like that? I used to just cry out of one eye and my ex husband used to kinda of laugh about it, which is not a very nice thing, but it wasn't a mean thing. But I'd be like, I'm just crying out of one eye. And he's like, what the hell? Like, I don't know. You know, it was like an eyeball issue. But anyways, I think people perceive that when I'm crying about it as that I'm not quote unquote over it yet. But I don't think that's really it. I'm not physically feeling stuff in a flashback kind of way, which is what's associated with PTSD and Dr. Vanderkoek talks a lot about that in the book. And and that's not really what it is for me. 
it's more of like, it's sad, you know, like I remember the first time that one of my therapists said to me that my childhood is clinically described as traumatic. And I was shocked by it. I was just like, what? Really? Like trauma? Really? Like it just didn't register with me. And he just looked at me and he's like, yes, Kylie, that's what it's called. And I was just like, oh, okay. It just didn't register, you know? And it was weird. So I think when I cry and stuff, talking about stuff, like it's just a sad part of what happened. And it's just sad. You know, it's not like I'm sad. It's just sad. Does that make sense? I don't know. I don't know what the doctor would say about that. The next part that really stuck out to me was um, he talked a lot about depersonalization, which is a symptom of massive dissociation created by trauma. And that's on page 72, by the way. So it's kind of like the whole blanking out and not feeling things like a flat affect, which I call compartmentalizing, you know, and I think it's one of my strong suits. I really do. (laughs) The problem is, though, after so much depersonalization, aka compartmentalizing, years of doing it, like I'm really, really good at it. But the flat affect kind of seeps into all other areas of your life. And then you don't really feel anything, which isn't good. And I think that a lot of people probably can relate to this on some varying levels. But I'm actively trying to work on that too. I'm trying to feel things as they come up instead of shoving them all the way down. (laughs) I'm trying to be more cognizant of it. As things are occurring, I'm trying, at least that's something, right? I think I'm doing okay there too. Well, some days, maybe, I don't know. Dr. Vintikok didn't focus on only one or two types of abuse or trauma either. His experiences with patients and studies showed him time and again that chronic emotional and psychological abuse could be just as devastating as physical abuse and sexual molestation which was page 90, I believe. I used to say to one of my therapists, the same therapist who called my childhood traumatic, I used to say to him, at least I wasn't sexually abused too, which is a horrible thing to say, right? I mean, not judging that, oh my God, I was horrible for saying it. That's not what I mean by that. But that's a shitty sentence, right? Like it was something to be proud of or some shit. I don't even know. At the same time, the doctor wrote that if no one rushed to help you when you were needing love or reassurance or comfort, then you discovered other ways of taking care of yourself and that these people are more likely to experiment with anything that offers some kind of relief, drugs, alcohol, binge eating, cutting, etc. You know, I think I was 12 the first time I got buzzed after school. My mom didn't even notice that I was like four hours late. (laughs) And I think I was 14 the first time I smoked. Granted, that was probably oregano or ground up dried banana peels. (laughs) Or some shit like that. But it wasn't from a lack of trying. (laughs) I don't know. But I, I do think that that whole 
not getting the comfort when you needed it describes all of Generation X as I know it, you know, (laughs) but that's just me. (laughs) Come on, it kind of does. Dr. Vanderkolk did find in his research, though, that kids who felt loved by at least one parent had a substantial difference in their eagerness to engage in schoolwork and to learn and to cope with things. I think this is addressed on page 110 for those of you following along, which makes a ton of sense to me. And I think it's one of the big differences between me and my little sister. I had a strong, solid foundation with my dad for the first five years of my life. And he stayed very involved like after he left. And my sister, on the other hand, didn't really have that. Like I may have started young in people's eyes, you know, with the drugs and the booze and the sex, but I did have very specific roles about like when it came to the party behavior and I made sure my stuff was done before I messed around. I knew back then that school and work was my ticket out of my house away from my mom. All I wanted to do was leave and make sure the door didn't hit my ass on the way out. And that was the way I was going to get out. And I knew that. I don't think my sister had a base. She didn't have that stability. She had chaos all the time. But not only that, like children whose parents are reliable sources of comfort and strength were found to have a lifelong advantage, like almost a buffer against the worst that fate could hand them. The doctor discusses this on page 112. And I know that's the case for me. I know that's the truth. Like after my dad left, he put in the work to figure out his own stuff and deal with his own shit. And because he did that, he was able to provide like this source of strength and comfort to me. I don't remember if I mentioned it, but when we first moved my mom from her apartment to her supportive living apartment, my dad actually apologized to me one of those nights on the phone, you know, one of the nights I was just oozing stress and been going for 15 hours straight or whatever. And he's like, I'm so sorry that I left 45 years ago and I left you to deal with all of this stuff now. And I was just like, I'm not, you know, I'm not sorry. When I told him that right away, like I'm, there's no point in apologizing because I was not sorry that he did it because he was stable and he's providing me with the base that I need now. And he was providing it to me throughout my life. And that made the hugest difference to me. You know, it was the stability and the comfort and the love that we needed. And he was able to do that. And I think my dad was a little shocked when I said that. And I was just like, I mean it. And I, I still really do. I, I totally mean that. And I, I tell my nieces all the time that they're lucky that my brother-in-law is stable and consistent because it's a counterbalance for them, for the chaos of my little sister. They may not see it now, but they will later on in life. And that's what I tell him too, my brother-in-law. I'm like, they will know. They know it's okay. Because, you know, everybody questions how they're doing, especially when you have somebody else that you're trying to provide a counter to that is, you know, chaotic at best. So you extra worry. Speaking of seeing effects later on in life, Dr. Van de Kolk also touched on attachment styles and its long-reaching effects, which is totally apropos for me since my last episode was about anxious attachment style. (laughs) 
But he said that he found that children with secure attachment combined with the cultivation of competency builds an internal locus of control, which is a key factor in healthy coping throughout life. He addresses this on page 115. On the other hand, children with history of abuse and neglect, which could lead to insecure attachment, learn that their terror and their pleading and their crying, none of that registers with the caregiver. So nothing that they're doing stops the abuse and brings any type of attention or help. So they're basically being conditioned to give up when they face challenges in life. Like it's fascinating to me and it's terrible. I've seen examples of that in my own life. You know, it's crazy to me. But the book isn't all just doom and gloom. You know, it discusses quite a bit about what they found working with kids and adults that helped deal with trauma for them. And one of the things that was addressed pretty early on was about non-pharmacological approaches to health, like specifically visceral awareness. This is on round page 88, by the way. But specifically visceral stuff, it's breath exercises and chanting and martial arts, that sort of thing. The rhythms and visceral awareness helps people shift out of fight or flight, which I know personally, I have used that technique and I've used it my whole life, actually, not knowing that that's what I was doing, but I was doing it. Like there was one summer that the abuse was mostly emotional and psychological you know, I think I was 14. Yeah, I was 14. And it was the summer that I told my mom that I wanted to leave and I wanted to go full time into the city. And, you know, as you can imagine, that didn't go so well for me. <laughs> and I told my mom I was leaving and going to my dad. She just about, yeah, that didn't go so well for me. But after every fight, I would leave the house and I would get on my bike and I would go to the train station, which was a few blocks away. And, you know, they had a big commuter parking lot in the station. And uh, I would just ride around the parking lot. I feel like I did it for hours. I don't know how long it actually was. But it was night, you know, 10, 11 o'clock at night. And I would just be riding in circles around the train station. There was something about, like, the calmness and the quiet and, like, the rush of air. Like, not hot air, not cold air. But... There was something about it that just kept my shit sane that summer. You know, it gave me time to process all the crap and also physically get rid of some of the anger. I would just ride it out and just be like a sweaty mess, you know. So I'll tell you what, it was safer on the bike at the train station at 10 o'clock at night than it was in my house. So yeah, as I mentioned at the beginning, I'm going to have my friend Andrea join us and she's going to talk about what she's done to release her own trauma. Like from what I understand, her work on it has been pretty extensive and I'm totally impressed by that. I think that's gusty as fuck. If you look at your stuff and you really work on it and try to release it, I think that's like, like super gutsy. So I just touched on that part briefly, but the next couple episodes, like we'll really dive into that. I'm not sure if we're going to have one or two episodes. I think we're just going to wing it and see how it goes. I mean, who knows? Maybe it'll be more. Like, we'll see how it goes. I hope that works. And I hope you continue to listen to the episodes about this stuff. So thank you so much for listening to episode 49 of Fixer Up. I hope this one makes you think a little bit. If you haven't read the book, go get the book. 
Again, it's called The Body Keeps the Score, and it's by Bessel van der Kolk. And it's great. Um, You can get it on Amazon. You will not regret it, I promise. If you like this episode, please smash the like buttons, subscribe, tell your friends, write me a review, leave me a comment on my socials. If you'd like to get a hold of me, my socials are mkylieg and fix.her.up. Email is fixherup01 at gmail.com. Voicemail is 773-236-1112. And my website is www.fixherup.net. If you'd like to contribute to Kylie's coffee consumption, you can do so at buymeacoffee.com forward slash fix her up zero one K for Kylie. I would greatly appreciate it. Oh, one more thing. If you see a fixer up sticker in some random bathroom in the city or in Vegas, or I hear there's one in Cabo now or Cancun or somewhere like that, which I think is great because that means I've gone international. So yes, I'm so happy about that. If you see one, please take a picture and send it to me and tag my socials. And if you would like me to send you stickers so we can work on guerrilla marketing all over this fucking place, I will totally do that. So leave me a message and let me know where to send the stickers and I will send them to you because I, I want to graffiti like crazy. I think it's fun, right? I mean, you know, not, you know. Like a sticker. I don't mean like really bad graffiti or whatever. (laughs) Anyways, I mean it for real. I think it's fun. I would appreciate the help. Okay. On that note, thanks again. Poopeach. See you in a couple weeks.